Welcome to Productizing Hype. Just kind of as a show of hands, it would help us a lot to tailor our message to you. If you could raise your hand if you are someone that builds software. Okay. And just someone that is really keenly interested in the process of building software. Fantastic. How many people are from a sort of a startup environment? And how many folks from a more established company environment? Okay. How many people from product? And how many people from the lesser disciplines? I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, and, and kind of, so we'll just kind of introduce ourselves to you, and then we'll chat a little bit about what we have to talk about. My name is Sean Porter. I am the Senior Director of Platform at Eventbrite where hopefully you know and love what we do. We, we empower anyone to put on an event and collect registrations or sell tickets. So my name is Jatin Parekh. I'm the founder and CTO of a company called Jelly. We build a radio platform for traditional FM radio. So we allow, uh, about four and a half years ago, we launched our first uh, service on the airways, which allowed users to crowdsource the music that they were listening to in real time. I'm Mark Mezrich. I run digital music product across MTV, VH1, and CMT. I'm Ethan Kaplan. I run uh, product technology design and operations at Live Nation Labs. Uh, so we cover LiveNation.com and Live Nation Mobile. All right. So kind of what we want to talk about today is, you know, we're now sort of in maybe a, depending on who you ask, a fifth or sixth wave of sort of internet software development. We had the dot-com era of course, to kind of kick things off. Web 2.0, as you'll all remember. Social media, the rise of Facebook, and now you know mobile is playing a bigger part. As we kind of move through those phases, each phase has these sort of features or products or new categories of things that we can do that generate a lot of interest and buzz and hype. You know, whether that's user-generated content or you know social or any of those things. So what we'd really like to talk about today is how you can translate those things that get people excited, get a lot of blog posts, get a lot of eyeballs into a product and sort of what we're defining as product is something that both delights users and you know, helps the business, generates revenue. Because a lot of these things come and go, but nobody's really sure how to translate that into to something that benefits your company, especially in music technology. So if we kind of talk a little bit, we'll, we'll start sort of by talking about social, you know, which seems odd by saying it's one of the older sort of product categories that we're going to talk about now. Um, but, but in talking about social, you know, I'm going to turn it over to Ethan because as we all know, and, and I know very well, nothing is really more inherently social than an event. So Ethan, why don't you... Yeah, I mean, Live Nation Labs originated actually out of two things. The acquisition of Big Champagne, which was a music analytics company that had, as a part of it, looking and correlating social activity along with music sales and music radio airplay. And experiments I was running at Warner Brothers Records and after I left Warner Brothers, where we were trying to capture social intent between album cycles. So the social aspect of music existed predominantly during album cycles, but once a band went on tour, we kind of lost the band. And so as like 2008, I'd say, through 2010, we started doing a lot of experiments during cycles to figure out how we can capture 
social activity as a means of keeping the narrative alive between album cycles. So we did a lot of experiments, mostly with the live shows, where we would use either you know hashtag matching, geo matching, or semantic analysis to try to extract social activity from within any given venue and present it to the band's website as a means of taking the concept of a tour and making it actually a marketing cycle, where for the most part the label didn't participate during that process. So that technology that I was working on after I left came into Live Nation when Big Champagne was acquired, and it's kind of the root of what we're really pitching and working on with the LiveNation.com and Live Nation Mobile now. At least in the live space, you know, the, 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 the narrative around a live show, is, even in social, has always existed around marketing. If you look, and Sean, I'm sure you know this, that the, the activity around people tweeting about shows is pretty cyclic in terms of announcements, on-sale dates, purchases, and the show itself. It kind of fades off before and after. And there's a lot of lost cycles and lost narrative that doesn't get captured in there. So part of what we're trying to do is figure out and then give the tools for fans to really express themselves as fans and as concert goers from the moment a tour is announced till forever after they've gone. So extracting content from within a show, presenting that content after a show, and not deleting shows after they take place, which actually all ticketing websites do. So for us, social is it's a natural byproduct of live events because you're putting couple thousand people in a room, locking them in and, and not letting them leave months after they've actually bought access to that experience. And we're just giving them a voice and trying to enable that voice and capture that voice out of there. And what, what kind of things have you, in sort of trying to broaden that narrative, what, what are kind of things that you've learned or, or things that you've done differently that have kind of resonated with uh, the, user, the user base, the concert um, doors? We kind of have split the live experience. There's two pieces of it. There's the transactional side of buying tickets, and which is basically getting access to a show. And then there's this whole other range of things that happen around that that are not transactional. And when Live Nation is a concert promoter and Ticketmaster is a ticketing company, and they're now a smushed together entity that does both. Ticketmaster does the ticketing part of it pretty well. And the social activity around that is mostly about, I want and I get, and I got, basically, or I couldn't, and fuck you all, kind of situation, <laughs> which is basically the three things we find there. But no one was really doing anything for the, the experiential part or the emotional part that actually exists as this kind of blanket over it. LiveNation.com, we get most of our traffic actually when tickets aren't even on sale. A lot of the, the emotional aspect of a show and the social... Um, who's going, are they playing near me, what's the set list going to be like, all that kind of stuff actually happens before the first on-sale date. And how do you take that and try to bridge that toward a transaction, take the moment from transaction to the show, which could be six months, and then how do you take the, the show, make that great, and then the nostalgic aspect, the afterglow, that, that, you know, and carry that into the next show experience. So a lot of what we're trying to do is split the transactional from the emotional and then lengthen the narrative of the emotional to try to bridge the 365 days a year where people only attend pretty much one point something, you know, 1.7, 1.8 shows a year on average. And I've always been really intrigued by like products that help you during the show. Like, I don't know, do you guys use GroupMe at all? Like that, if you guys don't know the story, they're like, that was, I don't know, 
anyone from Grimmies here today, but that was actually built out of a need for during concerts. Yeah, it was a right. hack day project, basically. Uh, yeah, so yeah. like, you know, how do we communicate? I think it was like Disco Biscuits concerts or something mm -hmm. like that. Like, how do, we, yeah, there we go. So how do, we, how do we communicate there? And I use it all the time with my friends. We can be in different areas of the show and how do we communicate, you know, during the show. So it's just, a, to me, it's a cool story of like, you know, finding that really one specific need yeah. and fulfilling that to an awesome extent. Yeah, I mean, there, there's so many little specific things that are more emotionally and experientially rooted than transactionally rooted. And to this point, live events have always focused, at least a lot of the stuff around live events are about discovery and transaction rather than emotion. And trying to bring that emotion back in, which is the fundamental aspect of live events since Greek choruses and, you know, and historically, that's really what my team's trying to focus on right now. Because uh, in coming out of the label side, where I didn't participate in the transactional aspect as much as the emotional, we're taking a lot of that and bringing that in. And, and Jatine, you're doing something similar where you're sort of taking an established industry in radio and trying to inject a, a social that's, element to it. That's exactly right. I mean, radio is kind of inherently a community-based service. It has been for over 100 years or so now. So, you know, our goal was to build, you know, a layer on top of radio that made it even more social, but make sure we did it the right way. And I think as many people in here in the room already know, you know, radio is traditionally programmed by one person, a programming director who thinks he knows what the listeners really want to listen to. And so they thought we were completely insane when we came over and said, hey, we have this concept of handing this over to the audience in real time. But uh, over the past four years or so, they've learned a lot just looking at the social elements and the dynamics of, uh, of how this works. And, how, and for us, one of the biggest challenges was really how we keep the 1% happy, who are the ones who are on our service all the time. You have the 9% that generally were in there and they were voting from time to time, but then you also have that 90% that never touched our service or logged in. So the programming directors are really focused on that 90%, and we, on the other hand, were focused on that top 10%. So it was quite a challenge figuring out how to keep the social um, aspects of our service going, making it feel very transparent and democratic. Uh, and what we found, you know, for us to be successful, what we had to find and actually do was really embrace that one to five percent of those users and actually bring them into uh, basically a product development process. So they started feeling like it was their service and their product that they were actually part of. It became much more than what we actually were ourselves. But even though it was around the station, they felt that they were the ones actually starting to create this product. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you definitely see that, you know, in. Um Event. I, I'm just going to kind of ask some questions around that because you see that in all these communities. Of the, does anyone know what the attribution to the one nine ninety is? I forget who the original person is, but but anyway, the theory is that one percent of people generate a tremendous amount of content. Uh, like you look at Wikipedia, you know how many millions of people are on Wikipedia? Uh, a few editors. Uh, one percent generate a lot of content. Nine percent are engaged and participate, and then the other sort of ninety percent are just lurkers or people that just very passively consume that. So, you know, one question I have for for you guys is, from past experience, there's this interesting push and pull of, uh, you know, the, the the people that are in that one percent or in that top few percent often aren't motivated necessarily by money. It's a community of interest. It's a it's a community of of passion. And so, but, but at the same time, they're unfortunately uh, the people that in a direct way can't move the business forward because they're already spending so much money or they're already doing all this stuff. So what, have you guys employed mechanisms or mechanics to both kind of delight and, and, and empower those people, but have them 
either sort of lift, you know, be, be the rising tide that lifts all boats or affect the other behavior, you know, because I'm sure your, your business, Ethan, would be uh, much different if people bought 2.5 concert tickets a year instead of 1.7. Yeah, I mean, we, we have an interesting predicament in live entertainment where you have the younger people are, the more often they go to shows, but the less amount they spend per show. Um, the older people are, the fewer shows they go to, but the more amount they spend. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, which is an interesting but not bad situation to be in. Um, the, the, the way that they can, you know, the, that 1% um, of people that go to a lot of shows a year, whether they're older or younger, whether they spend a lot or, or don't, and if it's GA shows or seated or whatever, um, they love to broadcast that, right? You're, you're locked into a room that you've paid for to get locked in, and all you want to do is shout about how great it is. And so creating the fear of missing out is kind of a, a natural byproduct of people going to concerts, which works in our favor to a huge degree. Um, it was all just sitting out there, and we created a lot of technology to kind of consolidate that. Is that, um, is, that, is that like the instead of the humble brag? Is that like the FOMO brag? Like you're, you're <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're it's bragging like, about how you're not missing. Out. I mean, if you think about live entertainment, the uh, the value, pro the, the the leaps of faith you, assumptions you have to jump through before you're actually standing there watching the band you paid to see on on the stage is immense, right? You're paying a lot of money way out in advance. You have parking. You have. Uh, service fees you have get babysitters <laughs> getting dinner getting drinks crappy opening bands and intermission where you're looking at advertising on big screens and finally like five hours after you've gotten to the event or left your house you're seeing what you paid to get and you can't leave so two songs in until you really know if they're good or not and you've spent 500 bucks to be there i always, I, I comment on this to my wife every time we go out to the show um, it's like, no, you can't leave because we paid so much goddamn money to be here. There's no possibility of you leaving right now. Um, yeah. That's why we don't go to a lot of shows a year. Um, and so, like, but you, you want to tell people, like, if it's great, it's great. And if you look at shows that, you, you know, that where the crowd is into it and you pull up an Instagram and you do a geo search on Instagram, you can see it. It, like, radiates out like heat. Um, or if you geofence a, an EDM show, like... Those things are, are palpable, and, and people want to broadcast that. It doesn't matter if they're high-value social users or low, if they have 10 followers or 10,000. Certainly, it helps if they have 10,000 in order to continue that narrative for other people. But we found that um, you know, that moment, if it's great, is good enough that it doesn't matter, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if they're the 1% or 90%, because every, everybody in a room, with, in a dark room with a light stage becomes the 100% at some point. In terms of your, your question about the 1% for us, you know, like what we do is all about scale. You know, we're, we're really good at turning, you know, eyeballs into ad dollars to be blunt about it. And so if the 1% represents the many and we can increase their engagement and that's creating awesome content with that social content and direct content on our sites, that's awesome. Um, and then it's really representing something that can really help scale for everyone. But if they're creating content, you know, it's comments on a site or something on social or something that really detracts from everything else or really isn't in line with everyone else, that's not necessarily going to help us, no matter how deep that engagement of that 1% is. We really just want something that's going to help drive more and more people to get there. So social is obviously really powerful. So you're at a concert, you're tweeting, you know, using the hashtag, whatever it is, and driving people back. But for, you know, content on the site and their engagement with a site, it, it can sort of go either way. You know, we sure. Yeah, I mean... You can definitely think of cases where uh, that passion can become toxic. Right? Yeah, Talk, like we were talking and, about YouTube comments, right? Yeah, you know, YouTube like comments or any discussion of uh, yeah. Android like I don't know how iPhone. that helps 
99% of the people out there, but I'm sure they're looking at the engagement numbers and saying, we can't change that. It's really awesome. And a small number of people come back and back. But like, I don't know what that does for the other 99% of people. So, have you guys found any ways where you can kind of turn the, that 1% into advocates or have them kind of pull in uh, and grow the bigger base? You yeah. Because if, if your jo- job is to get as many eyeballs as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're talking traditional social, you know, that's not social, you know, that's leveraging social on your sites, but leveraging social within social media, that's that's usually going to work out well for you. So if you're making sure that, you know, your product is optimized so people can tweet about it, you know, on Twitter, if they're not, if they're not affecting your product directly, which is totally different from your use case, Justine, but, mm-hmm. but it, you know, if it's just about, oh, you know, I'm on Artist Adam TV and I found this awesome new artist I hadn't heard about before, and you know I'm the one percent who's really going to you know tweet about that and engage in it. That's not going to do anything but help. Or even if they're saying I found this artist and I hate them, that's still you know talking about it in a really relevant way. That's you know forming opinions and that's cool. Um, you know I, th- I think the the danger comes in how do you how do you incorporate social into your site? You know that that's where you have to be a lot more careful about you know making sure you're not creating experiences and crafting experiences with that one percent that that don't speak to the other ninety nine percent. And you guys have done some work kind of maybe even rethinking the problem and thinking about the artist as the 1%, right? Or thinking about yeah. the artist as a, as a high-value contributor. Like yeah, absolutely. Like, engage them in a different way. Yeah, so I mean, for those who don't know, we're, we're working with, um, you know, we have a new product out called Artist at MTV. Uh, we work with Topspin. We allow artists to take control of their page. So, you know, we've always had uh, a Lady Gaga page or a Jay-Z page or whatever, um, and, and you can take control of that page and sort of make that another platform for yourself and really control that presence. Um, and, and the other thing we can do is, you know, we all, 40 of us or whatever there are, can start a band together, the, the double polyphonic spree or whatever we want to call ourselves, and, and we can create a page tomorrow um, and, you know, upload our music and all that traditional stuff. But, you know, as a social element, it, it's interesting to think about, um, you, you know, that's a, that's a one-to-many social, social engagement, right? So the artist is saying, oh, I can take advantage of the millions of people that are coming across MTV, VH1 and CMT's you know, digital properties and, and broadcast out, which is really important. You know, people forget everything about social. It seems like it's democratizing everything. And obviously that's huge and amazing and important, but there's also the element, the, the broadcast element. You know, how, can I, how can I get my voice out there? And that's an important thing too. And the next thing that we really want to tackle is sort of going the opposite way, right? So it's not about everyone just getting their, their message out equally how can we funnel our messages out to a band? You know, how can we, we most directly get our message out you know, as, fan, as a fan base? How can we get our message to Jay-Z? You know, how, can we, how can we really be in, in true touch? Because if you think about the way, obviously that happens on Twitter now and some artists are more engaged, more engaged and less engaged than others, but, but that's almost like hacked for that use case, right? You know, it, it's not really, it's a broadcast thing. It's not really meant or designed from the ground up to be a mechanism for fans to reach out to some famous person and get really get in contact with them. So one of the things we're really thinking about deeply is, you know, how can we have something that's truly meaningful that's not the 1% making a lot of noise and hopefully someone reaching out, but the crowd as a whole getting together sort of in the ways that you guys perfected, you know, at Jelly, and saying, all right, this is what people want to know about and how can I broadcast that back as an artist? Yeah, I mean, you, you guys is kind of a little different where, you know, there's something going on, whether it's, you know, programming or whatever, and then we're trying to kind of wrap it with social or events, and you guys are kind of inverted that a little bit, right? Yeah, where that's right. I mean, in many ways, these these broadcasts that are happening all over the United States here and around the world, actually, but are pretty much virtual venues, and... Uh, you know, when we first started, I don't think many programming folks in radio really believed in Twitter or Facebook. We had some of them even say that they were basically fads. 
Um, this was, of course, before Mark uh, Zuckerberg was on the cover of some magazines um, <laughs> and the social network. But uh, but we really, um, they started opening up when they saw all of this social activity actually occurring. So when they saw this 1% to 10% that were all of a sudden saying great things about their station and how um, forward-looking they were, you could see all of a sudden um, the folks that we actually sell into, the actual operations um, of radio stations, uh, we're all of a sudden getting very excited. And then the next question is, how do we harness this the right way and make sure that when we throw you know, uh, festivals and uh, music concerts and we promote things all across the United States, how do we get these people, this fan base, to show up and become part of our street team? And, uh, and it just naturally started happening. But if it wasn't for the social element, it wasn't just Jelly. It was you know, everything around Jelly, including you know, Facebook, Twitter, all the right... Um, uh, connections to Jelly, but then just as important was actually funneling that back into the radio stations in the right way so they could see what was going well and in some cases what was not going well. For sure, for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, um, I think that's a pretty good cross-section of uh, some different approaches on social. Another obviously massive uh, effort that's underway, you know, every person at this table, I'm sure every person in this room is mobile. Um, it's kind of boggles the mind to think that the first iPhone came out less than six years ago. It's so ingrained uh, into our lives now. Um, another way of thinking about mobile that I always thought was pretty fun was mobile is the personal, personal computer. <laughs> so, um, you know, because this, this is the one thing you don't share. You don't, nobody else uses your phone uh, unless it's your kid and then you change the code. So, <laughs> you know, kind of thinking about mobile, I'm sure you, you know, with, with, with radio and the stuff that you're doing, trying to take that very broadcast thing and make it a lot more personal and more relevant, kind of what's the stuff that you've, you've learned in that process and what maybe were some things that were counterintuitive? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think, uh, you know, uh, when we started, almost all of these radio stations and folks that we were selling into uh, also were not really using smartphones. So they were all about sending people to their radio websites, which by the way, are some of the worst websites on the internet. And, um, but they truly believed that the way that they were going to be su become successful is getting more people to hit their webpage. Um, and uh, very quickly, within about a year after that, we realized that regardless of whether our customers are asking for it, we need to ship mobile. Um, and uh, within, I think it was within three months of us shipping our first mobile application, 80, over 80% 80 of our user base went to mobile. And then we had a network effect where we actually started driving up the ratings of every single one of our stations for our day parts using the traditional Arbitron method of measurement. So that was kind of an eye-opener and a game-changer for everyone who's using our service. They realized all of a sudden that even though they were using Internet Explorer and they had these old broken-down computers in their stations, that their actual audience was listening to radio, of course, on the go in their car and around town, um, but wanted to access their station with mobile. So for us... If we had not shipped to mobile, we would not have had much traction at all. That's crazy. 80% in three yeah. months. That's, yeah. that's pretty remarkable. Um, you guys? Yeah, go uh, you know, like, uh, I've been um, doing stuff in live for since I was 16 when I worked with the band. And to see how mobile rose in terms of the live experience, it, it makes sense. I mean, as you said, it's the personal, personal computer. Um, the other way of looking at it is the, the ubiquitous computer. Um, it was like, you know, a chain of academic research in the late 90s, ubiquitous computing and pervasive connectivity that kind of coalesced in this thing. 
Um, by, by the way, have you seen like the MIT Media Lab? Have you seen that photo of the, the UV comp guys? Yeah, they make Google Glass look incredibly sexy. Yeah, it's like basically <laughs> with this strapped to your face. Um, yeah, UV comp is not the uh, most uh, sexy field to be involved in. We had things strapped to your back, but I mean, mobile completely changed the live experience. It also completely changed, like I said, the FOMA, the fear of missing out aspect of it. Um, through different tours at Warner's, we saw like the rise of, of tweets of shows we are suddenly getting spoilers of set lists because people were tweeting during shows. So bands that kind of coveted the unpredictability of set lists were starting to get that, that ruined during the show itself. Um, people actually complaining about lack of cell reception at festivals. These things were all new that as concert promoters, we didn't, you know, live nation when they were promoting shows that we were, marketing at Warner's like we would have to give feedback to promoters like yeah you, you got to fix your venues because there's no cell coverage and the artists are complaining and they're starting to put it in their writers that they need you know high wi-fi hotspots and, and stuff like that so at this point we're almost crossing the threshold of 50 percent mobile traffic on our websites um, at some points during the day depending on what's going on we'll hit 80 percent mobile on the websites and the mobile apps are definitely contributing a lot of revenue through Ticketmaster and Live Nation Mobile. And we're still kind of at the early days of figuring out what it means to be a concert fan on, an, on a phone. Um, the life cycle of a concert fan is different because the, you know, they're not leaving it behind when they actually go to the show. So you have to switch the context of what you're providing if you want to provide something during the show. We own venues and we're still trying to figure out what we can do in those 140 venues we own to make the experience that much better given that there's still infrastructure cost and that artists don't like having glowing screens illuminating every face. So trying to be sensitive to that and other fans. So it's really a nascent thing. I mean, we're, we are only six years into um, you know, high-resolution high smartphones or portable computers like this. And in six years, we've gone from a, a device, the iPhone 1, which you know had what the power of a 1997 iMac to the iPhone 5, which has the power of a, a, 19, a 2007 iMac. So we're still kind of in early stages of this, and, and it's going to be interesting to see exactly where it goes. By the so, way, I, sorry, so no, I was good. tweeting out set list. I was at a Vampire Weekend concert a few like a month ago or so, and there was a, there was a song I didn't know, so I was just checking it out on on Twitter just to see like I knew the set list would be there I can sort of depend on the, the social good of everyone and I realized there was a guy next to me or like two people over in a sweater I guess like trying to dress up like Vampire Weekend he was like already going retro he was like had his like his you know moleskin like binder like writing down the set list and like everyone was observing it's like this has only been around for like seven years but like we're already, so we're already retro in, we're, we're already, already over it hipster you know? reversion yeah, yeah, back exactly. to moleskins but he, had his he, he mulches cool. the paper in his backyard he yeah, got probably. a compost <laughs> artisanal set list <laughs> absolutely I, I mean yeah to go back to something that you said uh, like 15 minutes ago uh, Ethan I'm, I'm always surprised that the people that they buy the tickets they're there for the on sale they get the babysitter they go to dinner they pay for parking they get in and then they trade in their thousand megapixel cameras for this and watch the show <laughs> do their tiny little screen <laughs> yeah that's just so it's kind of the same thing you know I think mobile you know massive any other stuff at, at MTV that is telling or interesting or, or fun to know about the mobile side? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's as big as it is for everyone else. It, it, it is for us. You know, it's, it's content, right? You know, M MTV started as, you know, what's, you know, the revolution of the newest screen, which was cable TV, right? And, and so, 
you know, we're constantly thinking about how to make use of the, the newest and newer screens. And that's what it is for us, it's different screens. So you talk about mobile, sometimes we use that, you know, in terms of Ethan's case about concerts, to literally mean mobile on the go, and there's lots of interesting use cases there. You know, for us, in terms of content, we, we don't even think that there's too much of a difference in what you want to consume or how you want to consume on the different screens. I think people who tell you, you don't want to watch, you know, oh, no one wants to watch full episodes, you know, on a, on a phone or something, or a tablet, it's, it's complete bullshit. I, I mean, you, you, want to, you want access to everything wherever you are on whatever device you want. We, you know, everyone's aware that's what people want. Um, so, so for us, it's less about mobile and just about, you know, when people talk about mobile, they mean different screens, right? They could mean your iPad or they could mean your, your game console or, you know, it's a, the Xbox One, I'm sure, is going to change a lot of things for a lot of people or Google Glass. So, you know, for, for us, um, you know, responsive design and all the sort of latest thinking around that for people who want to geek out about that, if you're all really products products and engineering people and things like that you know just you know thinking especially about a, a form factor like this like you're you're kidding yourself if if you're not using responsive design in, in my opinion just to get get a little technical about it um it, it, you just you need to be prepared for your content to be consumed anywhere on any type of device right you know you just you don't want to have to think about what if someone's opening up a link on Twitter or on the native, you know, app or whatever on whatever platform? Just make your content ex as accessible as you can, considering whatever rights that you have, which is, you know, often a complication for us being in music, um, or being in cable TV. It's complicated as well, obviously. Um, but but it's to the extent that you can do that, you need to do that, and, and make sure your pages format as well as they should. You know, just just. I won't bore you with it now. Read up on responsive design and go in that direction. That's my <laughs> my biggest takeaway I could possibly give you. No, I think I think that's if a you really have to pinch, you're doing it wrong. Was that? If you have to pinch, you're doing it wrong. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. But there is there's definitely a lot of new form factors coming out of mobile. I mean, we have to deal with the the automotive. You got to deal yeah. with the Google Glass. You got all these different screens that are coming out. And I think that's one of the challenges with mobile is how you get the right experience on all these different devices. Um, for Jelly, for example. You know, we have, we're looking at a voice technology because when you're driving around, we don't want people to be voting hundreds of times on a song, for example, um, versus, you know, if they're walking around with a cell phone, it's just two very different experiences. So I think that's going to be something that's going to be very critical to keep an eye on as, uh, as new form factors come out. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, that's kind of an interesting bridge into our next topic because one observation that I've made is, um, there, you know, mobile is, and this is kind of weird, but going back to sort of another old meme, but mobile has sort of forced the hand of the semantic web. And what I mean by that is like mobile, because of its design constraints, has really sort of forced, instead of just getting a page of Google search results, now for when I search for one of, you know, Ethan's venues, I get a nice little card with photos and it shows me the upcoming shows and it shows me all this other stuff. Um, but when you, you know, that in and of itself makes search results better, but then when I go look in Google Now or I go look in another interface, that's kind of the primary way that I, that I use it. It's less pace to screw up, is really like, I think why design's gotten better out of it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's like, it kind of forces you, if you, if the, the smaller the form factor, the fewer pixels you have, the more you have to make everyone count, and that means you've gotta have photos, that means you've gotta have, you know, sort of canonical distilled information about it, that means, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the semantic web, that's another thing that we kicked uh, the can around on 10 years ago, but we didn't get very far, but now it's really making a huge, a huge comeback. And that also kind of leads into the other current um, obsession, which is, you know, big data. And I know that's a huge 
you know, part of what we do at, um, at Eventbrite. We've got a whole dedicated data team that just, you know, in, is completely absorbing every single piece of data that we can and then turning that back around in how we um, recommend events to people. You know, we have a, sort of the issue where given that anyone can um, host an event on Eventbrite, uh, the challenge of showing relevant events to some to any given person is a little bit more difficult. So we're, we're kind of forced to do that. When and and I kind of think about big data. What's interesting is everybody agrees that they have to store it, um, but I don't know that we've really gotten to the point that we've we're finding more needles, or we just have bigger haystacks. So, you know, maybe that's something that. Um, that you can kind of talk about at uh, w with your various efforts at, at Viacom MTV. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, we're obviously not a big data company. We're a media company. But, you know, beyond being aware of the trends, there's a lot of awesome ways that we can tap into it. And we've got some, some big data people here in the back, in fact, who uh, are doing some cool things. But, you know, we, we work really closely with companies like um, Next Big Sound, the Aquanest, Rovi, and, and to us, it's really about how can we take advantage of all these sort of trends in big data and present them in really interesting ways. So, you know, we talked before about artists down on TV and, you know, we can all start a band or, you know, Jay-Z has claimed his page and presents it the way he wants to. But then we also have really profiles for a million artists. And the, and the way that we do that is by working with the Next Big Sounds and the Equines and, and the Rovies and, and pulling to get together their awesome sort of ways of sifting through data and presenting it in different interesting ways. So for us, it's less about you know, mining the data and, and you know, sent and, and using it to kind of target creatively that we do some of that stuff as well, sort of at the Viacom level. Um, but in terms of my efforts on the product side, it's really about how can we make sense of it all and create cool experiences for people out of that data, right? You know, how, how can we use the power of Wikipedia to present bios, but also use those as data points to make an awesome visualization of a, you know, a timeline feature that's going to tell people all right, so this is when someone put out their first album. This is when someone finally, you know, signed with a major label. You know, whatever it is, how can we create fun experiences? So it, it's it, it, to me personally, it's less about you know the data mining and really just about presenting it. Sure, as cool so it's enriching the content in yeah. a lot of ways. Uh, of kind of those experiments or, that you guys have done, or the different products that you've rolled out, what have you seen that's really resonated with people? Um, I'm always thinking about the next thing. So we got uh, some some cool stuff with uh, David back there, uh, who's, uh, that I think will really resonate. But I, I, I think, just to be honest, just the, the sort of clean presentation of the artist denim tree pages has sort of res resonated with people. The idea that like, we can pack a lot of information you know, into a, to a small amount of space coming from disparate sources. Because you know, you've seen sort of experiments around that kind of stuff in the past. You know, if you look at like, the pages that Yahoo launched, the artist pages they launched probably in 2006, right? Which, might still be their pages today, but um, it, they were really about, all right, pulling from disparate sources, but it's like, here's your Flickr piece of information, here's your, uh, you know, AMG sourced photos, and it's all sort of, you know, disparate bucketed sort of thing. So for us, it's about how can we put it together seamlessly so you don't have to worry about, you know, what a data source is, you don't have to have to worry, worry about any of that. And the, the other thing that we've done, um, you know, one of the things we launched with the Equinest of a couple of years ago, something called uh, the MTV Music Meter. And that was really about, you know, pulling in data, not just, you know, in, in terms of information about an artist, but, you know, how is an artist trending around the world, right? So, uh, you know, what's their activity on Twitter? What's their activity on blogs, message boards, things like that, and trying to get a, a really daily view of, 
you know, of what's trending. And uh, that really resonated with people. Cause, and again, but you know, the, the point to us wasn't to be able to say like mathematically, like I'm telling you number one today is Hunter Hayes. You know, no one really cares about what the math is behind that. And we did a lot of Unless research. You're a Hunter Hayes fan. I know a few of those, but even still, like I don't—they just care that he's number one. I actually really don't think they care. Like we did a lot of research around, like, do we expose the math behind this? Do we say where all this data came from? And you had managers interested because they wanted to know how to game the system. But aside from that, no one really cared. They just wanted to know who was number one, who was number two. And at the end of the day, can you can this list expose new, me to new artists? That's all they want. Like right. again, it's just it's just using the data to create fun experiences for people where they get some useful information. Um, so you know. Okay, great. Ethan, I know, didn't, if I have my history right, didn't Big Champagne essentially start off as a, an analytics service for file trading systems? Yeah, I mean, Big Champagne has its roots in, in 12 years ago of, um, yeah, analytics for file, for file sharing, Kazaa, Napster, and BitTorrent, and it grew to be, to encompass any um, uh, aspect where music was, you know, being listened to or bought, so it also covers, at this point, MTV, all the major outlets and radio, et cetera. Um, so we kind of have it. We had an, when we came into Live Nation, we had an interesting challenge ahead of us that we had the big champagne data set, which includes all transactional and social and logistical things around recorded music, including the back end that at least gets us a good corpus of uh, artist names and records and discographies, which is extremely difficult if anybody's ever tried. Um, along with the Live Nation and Ticketmaster data set, which was all around ticketing. So a lot of what we spent a lot of time on is inverting ticketing into being about shows, so consolidating tickets, and then marrying that with the Big Champagne data set. And we use that data set now to power the LiveNation.com. And mostly we spent a lot of time working on that because we needed a foundational layer upon which to actually do discovery, recommendations, social things, um, consolidate you know similar artist rankings around around artists because that just it was impossible to do before we had to marry those two so at this point livenation.com and mobile are on top of this new data set that is a marry of big champagne and ticketmaster um and we're, we're collecting also other pieces of it um like social activity around shows um things around the geo areas of where shows take place so given x thousand shows a day we track a bunch of different metrics per show um, some proprietary and some public APIs, um, as well as trying to marry these different. What, what, what's a public one that you can talk about that's like very inst telling? Like Instagram photos around a geo radius and seeing where the taper is according to a venue and what frequency of photo posting is per venue size or real time tweets per venue. So taking a lot of these different signals that we can get and trying to you know extract things out from them. So I have a data guru that just sits there mining this stuff all day. We'll figure out where to expose it at some point. Um, but yeah, like you said, there's the haystacks are infinite at this point. Data is super, super cheap. Um, I can spin up, you know, just increase the budget for S3 storage as, as long as I want. We can spin up thousand machines to do MapReduce against data sets and do all sorts of new algorithms and stuff. It's mostly like how you display it, um, how you surface it, how you make it a part of the normal conversation with your user. I mean, the, the, the best data science work that we model ourselves after a look at is our applications that exist in a dialogue with the user rather than trying to make something of the fact that they're doing data science. So Foursquare has really good data science people behind it, but they make the application exist in a dialogue with the user rather than exposing them to the fact that there's data science underneath it. 
Um, there's a lot of cycles spent wasted against data science for purposes that are better served through editorial. Um, and we're constantly checking ourselves against that. Music discovery is a key example where editorial for the most part does better work than data science against it. Um, a lot of uh, our- Is there anyone from Twitter in the room? <laughs> I mean, a lot of our content on, like we have, we have a lot of editorial curated content. Our new homepage we're launching soon is almost 50% editorially curated and 50% algorithmically curated. Um, and we're shifting that balance up and down, mostly because we find the editorial curation is what people are actually looking for, rather than algorithmic curation, which kind of normalizes itself along the same means uh, anyway, because of the same 1% 90 90 kind of rules where the head is always driving the head, essentially. So there's not much value in that long tail because you end up with bar mitzvahs and, you know, uh, pageants and stuff at the end of our long tail. So. I'm sure loves bar mitzvahs and pageants. Bro. Well, I'm sure you're, I'm sure the the Eventbrite long tail is much more that. interesting than the Ticketmaster one. It's very long. Um, can, I, can I actually say one thing just on on the just to generate a little controversy here? Just on, on the on the Twitter thing, like I I think it really depends on the on the use case a little bit, right? Like I actually think like if you think about Twitter music, right, and where they started, you know, they started the guys that we are hunted. Um, you know, that was a little similar to what we were, I was talking about with, we did with the M2 Music Meter. And that's sort of, you know, you can think of that what you will in terms of like, you know, generally understanding data. And it's sort of a funny position for us to be in because we also, as, as MTV, do a lot of awesome editorial. And we sort of looked at that data as well and we see the power in both. But if you look at what Twitter Music did, it's actually really smart in terms of the conversion from Hunted to that because it's really about what are people saying, right? Like Twitter sure. Music actually answers a really simple question in a lot of different formats. And it's really, you know, what are people talking about on Twitter? So I, I think to your, and that doesn't sound I think I think that's a mix, right? It's like it's it's editorially driven conversation at the root, right? Yeah. What what are people saying always has its roots causally in things that somebody else has said, and if you chase it back, it's usually music journalism, radio. I mean, yeah. these are all mm -hmm. like kind of gone through the same means. So I mean, we're editorial curation against data, and that extra step at least quantifies and kind of sets ex the, the window at which people could enter the data rather than it just being kind of random nonsense. This is why Apple employs so many editorial staff. Yeah. They employ much more editorial staff than people realize, all ex-music journalists, ex-A&R people, etc. for the reason that they take the data, they have more data about music purchasing habits than anybody, and quantify that into different verticals that are driven through not only music, music data, which they get from radio PDs and Big Champagne and other places, uh, commerce data, which they get from their own database, as well as editorial guidance they get through A&R and editorial. So I think there's, there's you know, layers to, to data that get missed. A lot of, I, I go to Music Hack Days a lot and we participate in some, and a lot of it is just, well, we're gonna take K-nearest algorithms and apply it to the Echo Nest. And it ends up with, you get and 60 projects. And it'll output through Sonos. Huh? And it'll and output through yeah. Sonos. And then use a leap motion to switch the tracks or whatever, right? And so a lot of it just kind of normalizes itself along the same path because algorithms are deterministic. And so you need some probabilism in there to, to make things more interesting. A really good example of that is I feel like 
everyone seems really interested, you know, we talk about local, right, is another sort of one of these buzzwords, and people are always interested in, like, what's the local data? And we've tossed this around internally at MTV, and it just seems to be this, like, phantom project that, like, no one seems to really own, like, what's the local chart? What's the New York chart? What's the San Francisco chart? And, and the reality is, like, I, I've looked at that data. It, it's the same, mm -hmm. you know, and, and everyone's really interested because the product, the, the data sounds interesting, right? You know, like, how do, oh, cool, I get to mine San Francisco data versus New York data. It's like, especially in a world of YouTubes and MTVs and everything else, like, we're all listening to the same stuff for the most part. There are other huge niches and genres and things right, like that. Right, unless you go to See, College Rock, and College Rock <laughs> is definitely localized. Like, if right. it, we, we were at Warner's, and there's a couple former Warner people in the room, hello, um, we would always, you know, look one level down from the pop and urban charts to find out what the trending in rock would be because yeah. it was always college radio oriented. So that was very regional. But yeah, at the, at the macro, I mean, there's two pop stations in this country, you know? So it's not like you have much variability in playlisting at this yeah. point. Yeah, if you want to look at like things that aren't charting, right? right. Like, you know, where, you know, fine, we all understand that there's this artist that's sort of emerging. Where are they emerging? That starts to get sort of an interesting data problem. Yeah, there's some local bubbling up because it's that the, people don't go to, to playing arenas with national tours. I mean, people right. still start out playing sheds and small right. bars and shit. But so. that might, but just, you know, like that, that's a smart way to look at it because that might not surface itself by like looking at a map and being like, all right, what's going on in Houston? What's going on in Nashville? But that will surface itself by saying, where is this artist popular? So right. it's, it's the point you were making that it's like, you've got to, you know, let the data tell you a story and the massage and sort of present it in a, a sort of fun way. Yeah, data doesn't itself tell a story. It takes people that can look at the data with some degree of guidance whether from foreknowledge or editorial or something to make it tell it. Because I can tell any story through data, right? I so can, it's, the, it's the old saw about lies, damn lies, and statistics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. It's like, it's, that, that's the story. If, if, if anybody in here has ever been into a marketing meeting at any record company, it's always, the, the question always asked from the sales figures, which is this big sheet, I think it probably still is a printed book, in 2013, <laughs> um, with all the different sales data and from Nielsen, from MediaBase, from Arbitron, all this crap. Okay, what's the story in the data? And then it's the marketing director or the or the promo guy that gets in this long, effusive story. But they're they're charting here. It's number one with the bullet here. Blah blah blah. But it's always about the story in the data. And it always takes the guy or the person that has something to to glean from it to tell the story. I mean, to an extent, I think that's true. I mean, I know at at Eventbrite. Um, we're very, very metrics driven and we have tons of, you know, there's a whole language that took me three weeks to learn about how we track and measure everything. But we, we do have it fairly dialed in where we say, hey, we're going to try this feature for, um, for attendees and then we're going to measure these four metrics and we're going to do the cohort analysis and all this stuff and see if it, if it shakes out. And I think that, because I, I get what you're saying where you can say like, well, you know, yeah, it's, it's the advertising is the soft brainwash and blah 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 that's all good but but you can win the transactional side you can definitely see is it is it working oh, no, sure. we, we still do multivariate testing and cohort analysis against things like button color for a buy tickets get tickets versus buy tickets i mean we do we do we run an average of a couple dozen tests what's a week the on the site what's the winner can't say yet. Oh, is that a trade we secret? We haven't released the button trade color. <laughs> no, there's like there's there's knockout, drag out fights Guys, about keep, the button. Keep color your right eyes now. peeled for the new buy tickets button on LineNation.com. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, well, well, you know, kind of on the radio side, you know, that you're collecting all this data. The, the, you know, you're kind of going into this world with program directors, where I'm sure they are used to being the lord of their domain, 
and now you're bringing this additional uh, data to the process. How does that exchange? Yeah, no, I, it's it's really interesting because it's an enormous amount of data, more than they've ever seen before. When you're looking at traditional ratings, you know, in general, I think our users on average do about 350 actions per month. So it's about 100 times more than Pandora by design. Um, but what you'll notice is that you know, with with a lot of these programming directors, they were completely blown away when we surfaced the data the right way. I think you know, many of them were honestly really um, concerned about seeing the data. So we had to feed it to them the right way and make sure it was something that was actionable, something that they can actually uh, realize, put more of this music in or less of this music in, and it was going against what they would traditionally think based on national ratings. So it was great to actually impact programming, and we thought that was a big deal, but we store an enormous amount of data, and we 10% of our staff are data analysts, so they're constantly looking at the data, trying to figure out what to surface and how to surface to users, as well as radio stations, and now our third constituent is advertisers. And as you can imagine, we're doing some very new things that I think people do all day long on the internet, but again, in the radio world, advertising agencies, national agencies have never seen this type of information. So we're getting to a point where we're actually even starting to shape creative content that comes from national and global brands across uh, the United States. So it's really interesting in that they, for example, can now place two different types of copy through the Jelly Network, and they can see what's resonating where across the United States, what demographics, and they can see it in real time. So we've even had some national brands, for example, Pepsi did this, and they weren't sure internally which ad would be better, and one of them did extremely well on the Jelly Network. And that was, again, how we were able to surface the data. We don't have any editorializing. It's just raw data that we take and then present it in a certain form so they can understand that, that information. But based on that, they took that particular copy and actually ran it across the United States as their standard uh, ad. So there is a lot of data that we have and a lot of analysis, but I think the key is you need to surface it the right way. We actually even had some agencies, for example, ask us to remove some of the data that we were displaying because they didn't want to see it. It wasn't their role to actually develop the creative. All they care about is if the ads ran across the United States or not. So it was really interesting as, you know, we love surfacing as much data in the right way as possible, but realized again that you have to do it the right way to the right audience. Too much of the truth is a bad thing sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, well, I think that's kind of it for us. What uh, We can take some questions if you guys have them. Do you think Twitter cards will help productize hype better, leveraging Twitter? Certainly can't hurt. I mean, it's more than 140 characters. <laughs> I mean, I mean it's a, yeah, it's a great way, sort of in stream, if somebody wants to know more, that they can, they can get more without leaving Twitter, right? Although that, so. that also means, to that point, like, without even discussing whether it'll be involved or not, and, and, and you know, MTV and Twitter, have, you know, we're always consistently, you know, top 10 brands there. Maybe just speaking personally, I, I always, I'm always a little bit wary of, of giving them all my content. Right, you know, like it, it's you know, it's a push and pull. Like, obviously, they're providing an awesome service where you know our content's getting socialized the same way, and it sort of depends on if the ads are going with it and things like that. But um, you're you're creating an ecosystem where it's less about links out and it's more about things staying in that Twitter Twitter ecosystem. If you take four photos from your photo gallery and put it on Twitter, where's the ad refresh? Right, and and, and we don't always look at things like that direct. I mean, that's the right way of looking at. It. We don't always look at things that directly. There's there's brand reasons and the, and for to to deal with that, and there's also just general traffic driving, and there's obviously benefit on both sides, but it's just something you got to be aware of that like, tw 
Twitter's not just doing it at their goodwill. There's there's a little bit of you know taking sure. taking the content and, and keeping it. And in-house. if content is your product, it's a definitely a different yeah. thing, right? Yeah. That's right. So I guess like no one would argue that the value of social or the value of data driven marketing. But how do you reconcile that with the fact that it is so easy to game the system in all of these platforms? It's, I can buy Twitter followers, I can buy Facebook fans, I can get one million Instagram followers with no pictures posted. So I think it's maybe less so applicable to live events where it's more authentic. Like I take a picture of you, I tweet it out, that's authentic, that's sharing, that's valuable. But post-event and maybe even pre-event, how are you sort of reconciling the fact that you can game these systems and that data may be questionable, you know, what you're getting in terms of metrics um, and communicating to brands or whatever you have to monetize. I mean, at some point, every system's gameable, right? Radio was gameable, MTV to a certain degree. It's been better, but I mean, every system's gameable. It's the results that really matter. You, You can have a million Instagram followers post a picture and have zero engagement. That's not a good result. So anything divided by zero is a null value. So... You know, I can have a million Twitter followers tweet a link and it will only show three click-throughs and zero tickets. And that's a lot less valuable than somebody that has authenticated, you know, 10,000 users. So anytime you have a system that makes currency out of counts of followers or influence mm-hmm. or popularity, it's going to be gamed either by the story told against it or by the numbers itself on the screen. So it kind of doesn't, I mean, make any difference. It's actually a great example of what we were talking about before, right? Like using metrics to tell a story. And like people are so aware of that that they'll gain the system, right? They're like they know that to get a million views on YouTube means something. So they'll gain the system whatever way to get there. And that's fine. They'll get the story out of it. But, you know, what is their channel really going to benefit from that in the long run? Probably not. So, yeah, it, it, so it's, it's really about just well, it yeah. levels itself itself out in the end. Like uh, a, a channel that has a million views is not going to have a million click-throughs on the ad impressions they get against it, and uh, it's going to kind of it normalizes itself out. Yeah, I mean, anything that people want is going to be gamed. I mean, even even on the transactional side, you know, there's ticket bots that. Yeah, come I mean, the bot. There was that story this weekend about our bot problems. That yeah. you know, the tickets go on sale, and the first mm-hmm. people that buy them are not humans. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a problem. <laughs> Any system that has a gating will get gamed, gamed as well. I guess this is more for radio, uh, just considering the different amount of genres that you deal with. How do you find that common denominator of social engagement? Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's really interesting because we were actually surprised with all the different genres, but the amount of social engagement based on the different age groups was pretty even across all these genres. So whether we were talking about country music, pop music, alternative rock, whatever it may be, the social engagement level was about the same. And we definitely saw, I think, uh, close to about 50% of our social activity was uh, with um, folks that are under the age of 24. And I think about, uh, it was close to about 70 or 75% was under the age of 34. So it tells you that just uh, it was more of an age thing, um, but that social, that social activity was really critical across all genres. We, we've actually just seen, just in terms of our social engagement, that there has been a slight genre difference, and maybe it's, you know, different products do different things, but uh, hip-hop and urban just kind of blow everything else out of the water, actually. Mm-hmm. Hip-hop and urban have always led formats in terms of yeah. social mm-hmm. engagement, whether it was ringtones, ringbacks, mobile, mm-hmm. SMS marketing. 
video chat, whatever it was, like when we were at the label side, it was always led by that and pop following. Um, rock was always smaller in terms of audience, but sometimes more authentic and at least substantial. Um, but it was still, it, you know, it always kind of followed that curve. It still does. It, I mean, well, you know. it, it might have been a function of the time of day. I mean, maybe they hadn't gone to bed yet, but when I checked Jelly this morning, there was a big EDM. Oh, yeah. Popularity. Yes. Well, EDM <laughs> has kind of displaced EDM urban in the uh, early right. leader in the early leader kind of category. Uh, do you feel that there's ever an ethical downfall as to kind of helping promote these rappers and MCs who are kind of, I don't know, as far as their content goes, isn't very, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how to say it without just saying that it's complete bullshit. But uh, I'll, 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 I know what you're getting at. I'll answer that. No. <laughs> I, I, and I, I just really deeply mean that it, it's it's a we try and be a platform, you know. So so it, you know I'm not saying that there aren't some lines that we draw, but you, you know we, we try and be a platform for everyone. So if you want to make horrible EDM music or great EDM music or mess or music with you know great messages or har you know what I might view as a horrible message, and we try not to be the arbiters of that. And we just want to make a platform where everyone's everyone's got a voice mm -hmm. and let the you know hear what the people want to hear and just and just reflect that. And I think too, you know, you, it's dangerous to try to be a, an arbiter in your own time. I mean, just think about to, you know the, the the horrors of Elvis the pelvis and you know all the other examples yeah, that we have Bruce. of what at the time was seen as just you know horrific, and now we just sort of chuckle at yeah. that. And I'm not saying that, you know. I'm not saying that some rappers that come to mind are in that same category, but I do think there are sort of dangers in that. And I think yeah. pretty much everything that we that that we do is fully participatory. I mean, nobody we're not forcing anybody to yeah, buy no a one's, ticket no one's, or no one's being forced to, to go buy a ticket to, to somebody. Right. Yeah. I think once you start editorializing, it's a really dangerous slope. You you really start having to deal with the backlash of the community. And for us, you know, even at times when we were not really trying to editorial editorialize, but we were trying to moderate a little bit we found that the community, it was just a major backlash. So we really had to become a platform and not really try and be censors at all with the type of content that went through our platform. Okay, I think we got time for one more. Yeah, once you found those uh, one or top one or 10% of influencers among the fans, what do you do with that? How do you take advantage of that to improve your ROI or your efforts? With that one. Well, for us, uh, if we didn't have that 10%, we wouldn't have a service at all. So <laughs> one of the things we found is, uh, is really just reaching out to that 10%, making sure that we listen to what we thought were the important aspects of the product weren't necessarily the most uh, important to them. So getting them into the loop and into the fold of how we prioritized our products and our product development was really critical for that 10% of the users. And, uh, and that 10% of the users are definitely the influencers with that other 90%. So, so uh, you've got like a forum for them or something where they can we have a participate great forum for them to more participate. Exactly. Deep, deep basis. Ethan, you guys? Yeah, I mean, we've historically, live entertainment's done a good job in the moment of taking care of the 10% because they're in the room uh, and a poor job out of the room. Um, we're trying to address the out of the room experience better. Um, you know, we're launching future features on... Live Nation to make it actually a social platform. Live Nation was not a social platform and Ticketmaster is not. They're commerce platform. So we're trying to change the dialogue. And so we're trying to really address that out of the room experience, which we really don't do well at this point, but we're getting better at it, hopefully. Okay. Thanks, guys. 
Uh, appreciate coming Thank in today. Guys.